All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. It's a Tuesday episode, so this is just me and Hugo chatting about whatever. Just um, me and Hugo? Yeah. I mean, that's isn't this the highlight of your week, Bradley? Uh, no? Often it is. No, no, no. no. I, I really do enjoy recording it, and I have to say on Tuesday mornings, I am super excited to listen to the uh, to the final product. Really? Yeah, I really. It's I now it's like part of my Tuesday morning routine. So, Bradley, if you were a reviewer on Spotify or, or any of the platforms which Firewall is available, yeah, um, are we are we doing well? Are we doing better? Where, where's your? I mean, what do you want to work on? A few things. One, statistically speaking, the data would show that we are both good and irrelevant um we have 26 <laughs> reviews on spotify we have 69 on apple i think it's a 49 on apple 48 on spotify so people clearly like the podcast and you know we get um listener feedback on a pretty consistent basis that that's really positive on the other hand if all of your listeners are able to just reach you one-on-one you probably don't have all that many to begin yeah with. although that although i will say I, we've talked about this before but the 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 individual responses, like when we get emails and stuff, yeah. they're always good, right? I mean, I don't mean they're always positive because sometimes they aren't, but they're always really they're, helpful. You, yeah, they're helpful. Like, at, at the very, at the very first of all, no one's ever not nice, uh, and generally they are positive. And there are people who actually do like the podcast and have a suggestion as to how to make it better, whether it's content or me not interrupting you or whatever it is. So um, yeah, so look, I think the quality of this podcast over let's call it the last year or so has improved a lot i think obviously just having the studio um makes it a lot better and easier i have found that when i am with the guest directly it is i'm much more engaged and better at it and even when it's just you and me it's still better if we're sitting next to each other um i think that we uh have a few kind of ideas like bringing back howard and jeff on a recurring basis and maybe you know bringing some other people and create some more regularity that way so yeah, I, I, I think so. But look, if you are listening to this and, and you don't mind, please let us know what we can do better. And um, also, if you don't mind, I guess give us a review because maybe that'll help more people listen. Also, just to uh, Bradley mentioned Howard and Jeff. So those are his his political text group guys. And they are going to be back in September and probably regularly after that. But we'd love to hear from listeners about things that you'd like to hear from them talking about. So if you have any suggestions or yeah. anything, please. And, and especially, I think the debate that the three of us are having, at least, is national versus new york um I, my gut is that just because of the moment we're in, in time people do want to hear about the presidential and biden and trump and all of that howard's argument has been that we have very specific insight into new york and it's much more broad and general uh federally so therefore we should focus on new york they're, they're, they're both i think good, good arguments so if as a listener you have a point of view let us know. So let's talk about um, the uh, the first thing on our agenda today, which is uh, the story by David uh, Wallace-Wells, who's been a guest on the podcast in the New York Times. He wrote a column about the rising mortality rate in the United States, especially relative to other countries. I think it, a couple of alarming stats in there, one of which is that there's basically like a million people per year of preventable deaths in the United States over the last two years. So it's, yeah. it's over a million. So that's a lot different than the than the sort of wealthy countries with which the United States usually considers itself sort of in the company of. Yeah, um, and you know what's interesting about the article was that it 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 it, it rehearsed these these you know pretty frightening statistics and stuff, but didn't really have any analysis about why or about what to do uh, that, about that's it. That's why we're here today. <laughs> I've got analysis <laughs> you, and some solutions. Oh, good. Okay, shoot. The the causes that they listed and tell me if I'm misremembering anything are. Gun deaths. 26,000 murders in the United States compared to 300 in Italy. That was a stat in there. Drug overdose. Yep. 
um, suicide, especially sort of caused by loneliness and social media. Um, those were the sort of, oh, and then I think the other one is just the, and this is why the U.S. life expectancy rate went down, anti-vaxxers, right? Um, right. And I know in some ways they're sort of a, like, screw them. If that's what they choose to do, then they get what they have coming to them. But it's still not good when, you know, people die unnecessarily, especially because they're listening to false prophets. So, um, you know, to me, those are the, the four biggest arguments that are cited. So then the, the first question becomes, which of these things are unique to the U.S.? and which are not, right? So social media exists everywhere. Um, loneliness exists. In fact, the UK declared it an epidemic a couple of years ago. So I think even before the Surgeon General here came out and started really talking about it. Um, but I think on this one specifically, the structure that we have in this country around community and family is often very different than other parts of the world. Um, I think I might've told the story before. Um, I was in an Uber a couple of weeks ago now, and I was talking to the, the driver, and he was from Lagos, and we were talking about Nigeria and sort of all of the ways in which life there is, is tangibly very hard. And so I said, so people are a lot less happy. And he paused and said, no, no, they're much happier. And I said, why? He said, because they're together, and they have their family, and their community, and their village. Um, that's not the way that we live in this country. And again, if, if the two keys to happiness based on the science are relationships and fulfillment, um, if you are depriving yourself of relationships because you're pursuing you know, material, professional success solely instead, and then when you achieve that success, you don't feel the fulfillment you think you would feel from it, or you, even worse, you don't achieve it and you just feel a lack of fulfillment completely, um, I think all of that contributes to much higher rates of unhappiness. So I think that our communal and family structures in this country um, are different and, and, and more problematic. And I think while there was a notion that the internet in some ways would be a solution to that problem, right? Bring people together. Um, and in some ways technology is, like my political consultant tax group. I, I get a right. lot out of those relationships. But overall, it breeds far more discontent and loneliness and sadness and despair um, than anything positive. So that's the first one, right? Okay. Second one is guns. That's really unique um, to the United States specifically. Um, and our gun policy is just, we're getting exactly what we asked for, right? If, if you don't want uh, that many people to die every year um, from violent gun deaths, um, then guns should not be so accessible and easy to get. Uh, we refuse because of our political structure and because of um, the fact that most elections are determined in the primary, primary turnout is very low. Um, we refuse to do anything about things like assault weapons. As a result, the problem just continues and continues. That is, I think, a uniquely American thing. Um, third would be um, uh, drugs. And I think that on one hand, no one has quite figured out the solution here, right? I mean, even the countries like Portugal that were trying experiments that seem promising, at least the data recently has been negative about the actual impact of it. And so, um, you know, whether it's decriminalization is the solution or not, legalization is the solution or not, I don't know. But, but I was thinking this, which is, I think in this country, especially because of the other things that I just mentioned, there's an even greater propensity to turn to drugs and to overdose on drugs. I think if you have a life where you 
isn't based on relationships and you don't feel fulfillment and you go online all day and all you see is what you don't have and how other people seem much better and happier than you, that creates a lot of despair. And when human beings feel despair, they want something to make them feel better. And drugs are very effective at doing that. And then when you have just plentiful supply of drugs, um, whether legally or illegally, and I guess now we have kind of a little bit of both, um, people turn to them and both the combination of drugs being more potent than they ever were, especially things like fentanyl, um, combined with the ease of accessibility um, and combined with despair, I think leads to higher rates of both usage and overdosing than you're going to see in other countries. So that may be the reason for that. Um, Fourth, social media. Look, social media exists everywhere. But again, if you want to look at, at the EU compared to the US, they regulate it, right? They have privacy frameworks. They have, um, you know, res- they, they put responsibility on the platforms to remove uh, toxic content. You know, they pursue antitrust investigations so the companies can't get so powerful that you can't regulate them in any way. And in the U.S., we have failed to do any of that, right? Section 230s, we've talked about this podcast a lot of times, completely protects the platforms so no matter how horrific the content is. There's nothing anyone can do to Meta or YouTube or Snap or anyone else. Um, and we don't have any sort of national privacy framework or regulations at all. Um, Lena Khan at the FTC, I think, is trying very hard to to bring antitrust suits against companies like Amazon, but um, the laws and tools she has to work with are insufficient. And so, you know, we're on all of those fronts. And then I think there's one that kind of wasn't in the article, and then obviously the anti-vaxxer thing, which is just another function of both our insane politics and both how we elect people, but also I think the basically kind of false choice that we give ourselves or belief that, you know, material success and happiness are completely interlinked. And then when people don't achieve that, and most people don't, especially in a winner-take-all society like we have, it leads to lots of anger, which then leads to, you know, easy opportunities for demagogues like Trump, and then leads to crazy shit like anti-vaxxers. But but here's in taking a step back, because, you know, y- you can ban assault weapons, you can eliminate Section 230, you can create a GDPR here in the U.S. for privacy, um, you could try to at least have more money for drug treatment and all of that. Um, and those are all tangible things that we, we could and should do. But I also just wonder a little bit of this is just is this just the flip side of American exceptionalism? You know, um, it, despite all the problems that Wells, you know, pointed out in the article, this is in still many ways the greatest experiment in human history by like a magnitude of a, a lot. Right. I mean, the ideas, the innovation, the technology, the wealth, the productivity um, that has come out of our system of democracy and capitalism um, is not just completely unique pretty much in the history of the world, but as we've seen, has done a tremendous job lifting up the vast majority of the world. And so, you know, global rates of extreme poverty, life expectancy, infant mortality, literacy, all of the markers are exponentially better than they were 100 years ago. That's because of capitalism. That's because of democracy. That's because the things that we do produce in this country, when they are exported to other societies, do create a lot more wealth, and that gives people better lives. And so, you know, we're in this weird sort of dynamic where this is an exceptional country, and we have um, created exceptional things. We continue to create exceptional things. It does a lot of good for the world as a whole, and yet in many ways, you know, we have a society here where people live pretty well. I mean, even 
putting aside people who are on the, the street, either because of mental illness or drug addiction, or sometimes poverty, but usually it's, it's, it's the first two. Um, overall, even the baseline standard living in this country is really pretty high compared to the rest of the world. We all have clean drinking water. You know, the, I was um, seeing something yeah. about, about England, you know, the, in, or in the UK, the, the, the basic um, sort of uh, per capita um, standard of living is the same as the UK as the state of Mississippi. Right, right. And that's considered maybe, you know, the next or one of the next few most advanced countries in the world. So we have um, a lot of tangible things in this country that other societies don't have because of our focus on success and productivity and achievement. And at the same time, it breeds a tremendous amount of discontentment, especially because if you have a world where Happiness is only achieved by achieve, you know, reaching certain goals, especially goals around attainment of objects. Most people are not going to attain them. And then when you have this whole fucking thing called the Internet that just shoves it in their face 24-7 about how inferior they are, of course you're going to have more drug overdoses. Of course you're going to have more violence. Of course you're going to have more suicides. Of course you're going to have more political polarization. And so, you know, I, I can outline and just did some specific policy prescriptions to deal with the symptoms, right? And I think we should do all of those things. The underlying cause is a lot more complicated because it is both incredible and terrible at the same time. Well, you, you used the sort of phrase, take a step backward, and then you looked at some of these much larger sort of societal stuff. Let, let's do the opposite and take a step more closely and like look at, say, for example, New York City. Sure. Now, one of the things that uh, uh, Bradley's uh, Father Gabe, who's actually been on the podcast um, a few yeah. times, um, talk about baseball. Well, we don't talk about baseball anymore on this podcast. That, that, so, okay, when we talked before about what's made the podcast better, yeah. lack of talking about sports has made it worse. Has made it worse. Okay. Well, that's not true. It, it may be better for the listeners, um, but I like, I like it. it. Okay. So, so one of the things I like to talk to Gabe about, so Gabe works with, at Bradley's company and, and does a bunch of stuff there. And one of the things I really like to talk to him about is like- Just CFO. Yeah. His childhood in Brooklyn. So, you know, he, he grew up in Brooklyn. He was a huge Dodgers fan. He has a lot of stories about sort of his connection to neighborhood and to community. And it, it's not something he makes like lots of big kind of conceptual points about. It's more just like when, when he talks about it, I'm like, wow, that's a that's a lot different than my childhood as uh, growing up in, in New York City um, about, you know, a generation after him. And then it's a lot different than my kids as well in terms of that sense of community, that sense of... Um, of neighborhood and attachment to place and a, and a uh, I mean, basically, there's a kind of richness to that human experience that I feel like is not as um, as palpable in New York City today. Yeah. I mean, I think our kids live really great lives and that they sort of, you know, bop around taking Ubers and have a really nice yeah. <laughs> kind of totally. like, like ease of, of, of life in the city that is extremely appealing and, and that they get a lot out of. But there isn't that sort of sense of community that that like comes across when Gabe talks about his childhood. Yeah, or and what's funny is, you know, I I do think part of it obviously is just both New York City and the, and the United States and the world have changed a lot over the last you know seventy years. He's seventy eight, so uh, seventy years or so. Um, but what's interesting is uh, uh, we have a friend guy named Rabbi Mandy Wolf, and he's a rabbi out in Crown Heights, which is where Gabe grew up. And the other day, Gabe met him out there, and they went out for lunch, and Mandy took him on a tour of the neighborhood. And I think Gabe was sort of blown away by, one, how good it actually looked, two, how orthodox it was. It was just completely orthodox. Um, three, the fish store that his aunt had, you, this, the sign was still up. You still said fish store, so he was very excited to send me a photo of that. But, you know, you, you got the sense from Gabe's takeaway 
that there is more community there, but there it's community based on you know extreme religious views and behavior, right? And I don't know if that's good or bad. I think it's good in the sense that people probably do feel like they're part of something. Um, and it's bad um, because oftentimes those same views are really bigoted and sexist and discriminatory and everything else. And so, you know, even when you see examples where community still exists, even here in New York City, um, I don't know. I mean, is there an example of a atheistic, secular community where people feel really close to each other and yet it's not based on religious views or exclusion of others too yeah or exclusion yep. of others. I, I i don't know i mean i know that we all seek it right so like i've realized like when i when i volunteer in the soup kitchen on thursdays the thing that i really get out of it isn't even the fact that i'm helping people have some food um it's that i've been volunteering with the same people for 10 years um you know and by the way they're not really like me right i mean everyone there's generally older and, you know, different types of, have different types of careers than I've had. Um, but I just like hanging out with them and I feel a sense of, of community. Like when I, we did the bookstore opening, they all came, right? And um, so I, I think we seek those things out and, and, you know, it's easy to say as I'm turning 50 and I've checked every box for success and achievement and money and everything else that like that stuff doesn't really matter and we should be more focused on fulfillment and relationships. And, and I get that, that, you know, having some wisdom and perspective and experience um, and security, you know, makes that a lot easier. Um, but I do think that a normative shift around how we define life, how we define success um, is really critical. Um, should we do one of our pivots? Sure. Well, this is actually a pretty good pivot because we're, we're talking about um, two, two data points on, or news stories, news trends on San Francisco and Miami. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'll mention the, the one on San Francisco first, but give me a second to mention Miami so you, when, when, you, when you start rolling, we can get both of them in the, in the frame. You got it. Um, so in San Francisco, um, there's two things that, that were interesting to us this week. One, uh, they're, they're kind of loosening up the, um, the regulations around uh, driverless cars in San Francisco. So there's a whole bunch of companies experimenting there um, and doing things in that area that are really pretty exciting, actually, about changing really the way people get around cities. Then in the other, uh, there was a, a Wall Street Journal story, one of the, you know, one in a series now at this point about, about the doom loop in San Francisco, about how bad the downtown is. And it was really focusing on the downtown there. And San Francisco has a much bigger problem than the rest of cities. It's like, I mean, it's literally about, they have this great cell phone data where you can see the level of activity relative to like what it was before the pandemic. New York is right there at the top of all the cities at about 80%, even though there's major problems with the commercial real estate situation here. But San Francisco is like, it's, it's, it looks like it's about half of what New York City is. Um, which is, you know, a huge... Per, per capita, right? No, it's, You're it's not cell saying, phone activity. No, I know, in, but I mean, New York City is 10 times the population. Oh, no, no. The, yeah, this is, this is a percentage of the, of the total before yeah. the pandemic. So it's just relative to its own performance. Right. So what, what, what that shows is that the sort of central business district in San Francisco has just not just declined, but looks like it may be, you know... Decimated. Like decimated. And companies aren't interested in being there, and there's just all these sort of knock-on effects of that. So those are the two sort of San Francisco points, which is the city sort of embracing innovation on the one hand and then dealing with this massive kind of commercial problem, in the, specifically in the downtown area. Yeah. The other thing, which was um, in, uh, this is the news from about 10 days ago, two weeks ago, which is that 
uh, Miami had the first population decline um, in decades, basically. It was it was it was small and a few percentage points, but. Miami is this sort of boom town. It was kind of a, 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 I wouldn't say shocking, but it was definitely like a, a contrary indicator um, on the health of sort of the economy and the sort of civic community there. Um, so those were the two, and and the the I guess where we wanted to sort of come together on these is what what American cities are doing to a remain competitive and to deal with their problems of, you know, the commercial real estate problem, affordability, governance, those kinds right. of things. Right. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, so. First of all, just I, I think this phrase doom loop is pretty self-explanatory, but just in case it isn't, it, it's typically seen as a process by which um, a city starts to shed more and more of its tax base, loses more jobs, more companies, um, and as a result, less and less revenue comes in, which means there's less revenue available for policing, for quality of life, so drugs get worse, crime gets worse, homelessness gets worse. That sends even more companies and workers away from the city. Tax revenue continues to go down, and you hit into a downward spiral that you can't escape. Um, Detroit, Newark, Baltimore, you know, a bunch of cities uh, definitely experienced doom loops um, at the end of the manufacturing era in the United States. San Francisco definitely seems like it's in one now, and San Francisco in many ways it's not that different from being like in like Midland or Odessa, Texas. It's a boomer bust town, right? It is a one industry town to some tech tourism, but otherwise it's basically technology, right? Um, and unlike, say, D.C., which is a one industry town, but those jobs are locked in, right? They're funded by taxpayers. Um, tech jobs can be absolutely anywhere, right? Um, and so I think the decision by San Francisco to allow uh, more driverless cars was really smart. And uh, my hope is that this is why that they did it, which is they're entering this doom loop. Um, there are sort of policies on urbanization and, and policing, whatever else, aren't making that much of a difference one way or the other. The only thing that can save San Francisco would be a resurgence of tech jobs, right? If tens or hundreds of thousands of tech jobs came back into the city, that creates the tax base and the wealth to then, A, equal out a lot of the other problems and also provide revenue to deal with those problems, right? The only reason at this point, since San Francisco is, you know, just like a, a dumpster fire downtown at least, for companies to, to choose to be their tech companies is if the regulatory climate is friendly enough that they say, you know what, um, we really do need to have to test out driverless cars on sort of hilly roads and all the conditions of San Francisco. And so if they're going to give us this opportunity, we need to take it, right? And AI does create this opportunity where San Francisco could be a, a global home of AI. It's well positioned to do so. You know, a lot of that research is happening in, in the Valley at Stanford, things like that. But um, you've, you're not attracting them anymore because you have such a wonderful place. You have kind of a horrible place. And so the only way to at least start making it less horrible is by bringing back more jobs and tax revenue. And so things like, hey, autonomous car com you know, companies have at it. I think they need to do that on every conceivable form of technology. And I understand that the local supervisors, like Aaron Peskin and those people, will yell and scream about gentrification. And look, I get it. All Aaron Peskin cares about is, is his political career and re-election. And tech people don't vote in primaries. But, you know, longtime you know, residents who are sort of unhappy do. And therefore, um, he's very happy to sacrifice the good of his city and the good of people for his own benefit. That's called a politician most of the time. Um, but if the city wants to save itself, um, the first thing is that I think it's got to be 
become again this sort of tech nirvana and without well, it, it I, I mean I, I hate to I hate to steal your your thunder but is, doesn't this all lead to a really good argument for trying out mobile voting in San Francisco um yeah you know, talk it, about it, talk it, about it uh, would consider tech innovation right for sure I mean it would it would considerably brought in the base of primary voters and people voting for DA. Like, think about their DA, right? So they had, of all the bad DAs we have in this country right now who don't believe in fighting crime and tend to sympathize with criminals over victims, um, Chesa Budin, who was the San Francisco DA, was like the absolute poster child for all of that. And he was actually recalled, because California has the ability to recall elected officials, he got elected because nobody votes in the fucking primary. He got recalled because enough regular people were sick of being mugged that they said, okay, I'm going to participate in this thing. The perfect thing, the better thing would have been just to have make it easier for those people to have voted in the primary itself. This guy never would have taken power in the first place. Um, so mobile voting, I think, would enable, um, A, people to feel a lot more engaged and connected to their city, but B, it would lead to more moderate policies and politicians, um, which would reduce the risk of lots of really failed experiments um, that have made quality of life so bad in San Francisco that they are hemorrhaging jobs. Let me add one thing there, because um, this is something I texted you about, but Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, was on Tyler Cowen's podcast. He said two things um, that caught my attention as it relates to San Francisco. One, he talked about what you just sort of touched on, which is the supervisors in San Francisco, which is a, a, a kind of post that's it's an elected position. It's, it's different than a lot of other cities have. But they have an awful lot of power, but they're elected with, you know, relatively small um, groups of voters because of the, the situation you're describing. But he said two things. One, that needs to change. These, these supervisors need to be voted out. But the other thing that was interesting, he says, I can't tell you, uh, I can't tell you because there are all sorts of things happening behind the scenes to fix the problem, he said. So um, Tyler was asking him about something about the future of San Francisco. He said, I can't tell you because there are all these things happening behind the scenes. And I was thinking that that's almost like... Like, like what you're talking about with mobile voting for something is like not behind the scenes, right? It's, it's almost it's the exact opposite. And it does seem like behind the scenes machination. I mean, who knows what he's talking about specifically? And maybe there's some great ideas there. And maybe something really exciting is going to come out of that. But the, it does feel like the way that the culture changes in a city like San Francisco is not from behind the scenes. It's from out in the middle of the city changing the way the, you know. Yeah, I mean, look, the behind the scenes could be, and I, I don't know what, and I, I respect and admire Paul Graham, but I've never met him, so I, I don't know him personally, so I don't know what he's specifically referring to. If it's like, look, kind of like what Dick Ravitch did in the, in the 70s, which is a bunch of civic leaders who do care about the city are working hard to convince companies to stay or to come back or whatever right. it is, um, that would make total sense. Um, other, but but generally speaking, uh, people you know a, a lot of sort of urban success or failure is based on perception, not reality. Especially crime, and I think crime especially becomes a self fulfilling prophecy where perception not only shapes reality but actually creates reality. Um, and so I don't know what he has in mind, but I think if it's good news, the sooner you can get it out to the public, the better off you'd be. Uh, you want to you want to sort of bring the Miami yeah sort of piece so into so this? so the the reason why population in Miami declined based at least on what we read is the lack of affordable housing which is a problem in Miami and San Francisco and New York City and Los Angeles and Austin and, Austin and cities all over the country um, and I really just wanted to commend Governor Newsom in the state of California for actually doing something um, interesting and thoughtful around trying to deal with the barriers to building affordable housing, right? And they did three things. Um, one is 
they changed the uses laws around kind of mixed use zoning. So they, it's easier now in the same location to have commercial, real estate, retail, manufacturing, um, to account for the world that we live in today, as opposed to a city 75 years ago where people lived in these areas and they worked in these areas and they were separate things. In fact, a friend of mine who's in real estate was telling me the other day that, because I was asking about converting um, empty buildings in Midtown into residential, and he said, there's a law that says that all residential has to be physically above any other commercial activity. So as a result, you have these giant buildings and you're stuck because you know, landlords aren't going to say, well, I'm not going to lease the 78th floor to an office if that's someone who wants to rent it. I need the revenue. And if you just waive this stupid, you know, antiquated requirement, I'm not even sure why it existed ever, um, then all of a sudden you open things up quite a bit. So, so there are a so lot— more mixed use within the building. More mixed basically. use. With, with that, for right. New York City, would be in the building. For California, though, it was more, I think, neighborhoods. Right. Um, two, permitting reform, right? Um, California— you know, gets caught up in environmental reviews. Their process there is called Seeker. Um, and, you know, gentrification, environmental reviews, and all of that other stuff. And ironically, the same people who are always screaming about gentrification are the same people blocking affordable housing as a result. So the, the people that they say they're trying to help, um, they're willing to sacrifice because they wouldn't want to, like, lose the ability to get likes on Twitter about something. Um, <laughs> and so um, a lot of permanent reform. Um, and then the third is called ADUs, um, attached dwelling units, which basically lets people without permits. Also known as the Fonzie apartment. Yeah, put up. Um, I have friends who live in L.A. And they're, I was over there in uh, June and they were in the middle of building one um, where they've got a teenage son and that's where he's going to sleep. Um, and they were able to do it inexpensively because if you don't have to go through all kinds of bureaucratic hoops. Um, look, I just did a little bit of renovation in my apartment just to put up a wall and create a third bedroom. We needed approval from buildings, from landmarks. I mean, for so many different, just for a tiny, tiny thing. So A, it costs twice as much as it should have. And B, it's just a deterrent to wanting to, to invest. And so um, ADUs, uh, by not having to get permits for them, um, become a much more affordable, appealing option uh, to make housing, you know, more available. So those are all things that California did. I think Miami ought to consider those things. I think New York City ought to consider those things. And one final point around this. I noticed this morning, it's an article in the, the New York Post about um, Tishman Spire, which is a really successful real estate developer, both here and, and all over the world, owns a building in Hudson Yards that just signed a few really big new tenants. And it's interesting to see that um, even as commercial real estate in New York has not recovered from COVID, Hudson Yards continues to thrive, um, and by the way, get the highest possible rents. We were looking the other day at rents in different neighborhoods because our lease is coming up in our office, and Hudson Yards was the most expensive by far. And I'm thinking, like, well, I don't want to go. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even want to be in Hudson Yards, let alone pay more money to be there. So the question is, why is that? And I think in many ways, it's it's a version of the doom loop. But you know, if you're a Fortune 50 company, you may not have the ability to sort of move into a suburban office park simply because you're too entrenched in the city or your talent base is there or whatever else it is. And yet Hudson Yards is sort of the closest thing we have to a suburban office park, right? And I think people are maybe going there because there's less homelessness, there's less crime, it's cleaner, it's nicer, it's safer. Um, but you're not going there. I'm not, but it, but it seems to me it's, 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 look, it's wonderful that New York City has Hudson Yards because it's created an incredible number of jobs. It's fantastic. With that said, 
if all of the new real estate is going to places like Hudson Yards, you know, maybe a four, maybe Pfizer, which moved from, you know, a really shitty building on 42nd and Lex to Hudson Yards, you know, had to stay in New York City. But a smaller, and Pfizer's probably a Fortune 20 company or something like that, right? Fortune 50 for sure. Um, uh, you know, a mid-sized company that even might have thousands of employees might say, you know what, I, I can move to the suburbs or somewhere else. And um, I think it's a really bad sign for New York City. Yeah. Well, I think the, the big problem is not just moving to the suburbs, it's people needing a lot less space. So they have these big, big leases and now, yeah. they're, now they're getting a third of the space or half the space or whatever it is. So, you know, I think the, the talent proposition in New York is probably as strong as it's ever been. It's just a question of whether the, you know, whether people are coming into the office. Yeah. Although, again, affordable housing would help ensure uh, a sustained talent base. Yeah. Right. Um, you want to talk about Biden's uh, technology ban yeah. as it to China? What do you- yeah, so, so Biden issued a kind of head-scratching a little bit executive order last week that basically bidded, forbade, forbade um, venture funds from investing in certain Chinese technology startups. And at, from a substantive standpoint, I don't, I don't even oppose it. It just, it's funny, I went on CNBC and I think they were really upset with me because they'd been hyping up this executive order. And then I went on and said, no, this thing doesn't matter at all. This is irrelevant. <laughs> and they were really not, not pleased with that. Um, but, but the reality is the vast majority of American VCs do not invest in China. There was a moment, you know, a, a while ago where that became a thing. Um, but one, a lot of those then became funds that were incorporated in China. So those aren't even subject to these regulations. Um, and two, investment from US VCs in China has absolutely plummeted over the last couple of years where it, it's close to non-existent right now. So one, it's not really a thing. Two, VC checks most of the time, except for really late stage, are just not big money, right? Like the average check size we write at a Touch Venture Partners is $5 million. Now, we're a relatively small fund, so multiply that by 10 or 100, so get, get to 50 million or 500 million. If there's a Chinese startup with really promising technology that can advance that country's military or economic standing or anything else, they're going to have the money to, to <laughs> fund that, right? Chinese government's not like, oh, I don't have the five million bucks. Right, I can't get Tusk's so, check. <laughs> right. So like the, uh, the depriving them of our money doesn't really seem to accomplish anything. And the third is, and this is what the, the, the host on CNBC said, I forget who it was, um, well, all of the know-how that you guys have. And, and look, my fund is a little oh, different. Look at him! look at him flattering you. All, all your know-how. Yeah. Now, I would say our specific fund does have a lot of know-how because right. we are specifically focused on solving regulatory right. problems for our portfolio right. companies, and we're the only venture capital fund that does this. But overall, and look, the reason why we win most of the deals that we compete for in venture is because the founder will sort of level with you and say, look, every VC says, oh, I can help you with so much more than just money. You know, my money is greener than everyone else because I can help you find engineers or I can help you come up with go-to-market strategies or business development. like, it's all bullshit. Like the vast majority of the time, it achieves extremely little and they do very little. You know, the reason why we tend to do well and have a good reputation is because we actually have to go run these campaigns. And as a result, you, you can't not do it. Um, and so that gives us a way to really make a, a positive impression up, upon founders. But I think the know-how thing is also wildly exaggerated. And so I think the money is easily replaceable. I think the know-how is wildly exaggerated. I think the actual existence of um, U.S. venture investment in China was incredibly small over the last couple of years to begin with. 
And so I, I just don't get it. I mean, I, the only thing I could sort of see that would make sense to me at least would be they did some polling. They found that Trump is much more credible on being tough on China yeah. than Biden. And they said, okay, well, let's try to do some stuff about it. They put together this executive order. And then apparently the, it was much broader and they kept scaling it back right. because as various companies <laughs> industry said, no, 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 here's why this is really going to hurt the American economy. Because like, okay, okay. So they said, finally, let's come up with something that means nothing, does nothing, and hopefully still looks tough on China. So they did that. And by the way, fine, I'm not going to invest in China anyway, so I, I really don't care that I'm now no longer allowed to. Um, but it just was like, uh, you know, policy without a purpose. Does this suggest desperation from the Biden administration's part to you? Like that they just can't get the public behind the economic strategies that seem to actually be doing Working yeah. really well. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 broader people don't than like that, him right? Anyway. Right. I mean, that's Biden's problem. Is as we've noted a bunch of times on this podcast, he's a really successful president, right? The the economy has not gone into a recession. Inflation has been going down. Unemployment has stayed relatively low. Stock market's doing pretty well. Um, you know, we've made massive progress on on climate, whether it's the all the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act or the infrastructure bill all the things that he's done on an executive order basis. Um, we are handling the Ukraine really well. Ukraine is still kicking and fighting. We're, we're a year and a half in now, um, and there are no U.S. ground troops on the, in, in that war. We haven't had flare-ups in the usual hot spots like Syria or North Korea or Iran. Um, he, he's done a really great job substantively, and yet the people don't like him. Um, and so I, I think that they are trying everything they can to figure out a way to make this guy more sympathetic because— you know, I don't think it's just his age because he, like, he's the oldest president. But Ronald Reagan was old and seen as really old, and he was beloved. Obama actually didn't have nearly as many accomplishments as Biden, and yet he was beloved by a broad cross-section of people. Um, and so I think it's something deeper than that. He just doesn't click with the American people. And keep in mind, he was losing all of the primaries until COVID came along, and then everything just kind of ra radically changed, and he just became the default consensus candidate. And then he was able to take on Trump in the general election, who was, you know, was going to lose. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they definitely have a larger problem around this. And it's unfortunate because you have someone who's actually for once doing a genuinely good job um, and that doesn't resonate with the voters. Let me ask you uh, one related question on, on Biden. Um, so uh, it, it brings in a topic that we've talked about in previous podcasts about the migrant crisis in New York City, which is yeah. obviously not getting any better. Um your position on that has been that uh, New York City needs to figure out a way to get these uh, people permission to work so yes. that they can become um, self-sustaining members of the sort of community. Um, should Adams By the way, like Paul Graham, I am working on something that I think might help, but okay. I can't talk about it Behind yet. the scenes. Behind the scenes. Um, I'm not really talking okay. about it yet. Uh, well, then maybe you won't need, want to answer this question, but um, should Hochul and Adams consider suing the federal government over this? I mean, sure. I mean, sure. Sue them. Um, I'm not sure uh, if that has any or chance in court or if it's just. But, a but why is this thing. a New York state problem? Like, it's so interesting that they talk about, like, you know, sending the migrants to Western New York or up to someplace else in New York state. And you're like, yeah, what about New Jersey or Connecticut or the whole rest of the country? Yeah. Like, I mean, like, it, there's, there's a few things. So one is, you know, in New York City, at least we have this thing called right to shelter. Right. We've talked about this on, on right. before. So it becomes a really attractive place for the homeless because if they want a shelter bad, and I understand the shelters have all kinds of problems, but still um, the city has a financial and legal obligation to provide something for you. I think we're the only city that has that. Um, the Adams administration, I was looking at. You don't at, think San Francisco has that? Um, amazingly, I think they don't. Oh, though. really? Um, 
uh, right, even if, 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 if even they, they don't have something, have something like that, right. God, um, I think Adams is actually thinking about trying to sort of end this um, this right to shelter, um, and I would support that. Um, but that's number one. Um, number two is you know we have this very very big, uh, well funded government um, that is also fairly progressive and compassionate, and so we're a good place to stick everyone with, right? And, you know, I think the city and the state have tried valiantly um, to deal with this problem under the constraints that they have, and it's not working at all. It's just getting much, much worse, which gets back to the basic point of there's only one solution here, which is you got to let these people work. All of them came to this country with no expectation of free housing and every expectation of working really hard, paying taxes, and and ultimately building a better life for their children and their grandchildren. They want to work, and at the same time, here in New York City, in construction, in hospitality, in home health care, we have tens and tens of thousands, if not more, of job openings that can be filled by people who don't have to speak English, right? So you have migrants who are desperate to work. You have a city that is going bankrupt trying to house all of these people. You have industries that are losing tremendous amounts of revenue because they don't have enough workers. And if you just sort of put two and two together— you would actually help the New York City economy, help the the city itself, because you would increase the tax base, take all of these costs off the books, and allow these people to better lives. And, and we're not doing it simply because the Biden administration is worried about this playing badly in, in you know Western Pennsylvania or Arizona or whatever it is. And so they're looking at you know the election in twenty four. And, and look, I you know obviously the the downside of Trump winning is so significant that I kind of get. Any act, any moves that are seen as needed to make sure Biden wins, but at the same time, um, you're you just you know they are embracing a completely illogical solution solely to try to mitigate some perceived political harm. So should Adams and Hochul sue? Yeah, but I would go a step further than that. I would create a New York City work permit, a New York State work permit, and I understand that you'll be sued for doing so. But I would but say you'll force them to act. You'll force them to act. Yeah. Right. So, um, so I, I think ultimately we know what the answer is. They're not going to act unless they have to act because their data clearly shows that um, it will play badly for them in places that they're worried about. They're obviously not worried about New York City. Although, keep in mind, if we had a national popular vote instead of electoral college, then every vote would be equal, and they would have to worry about New York City. Another reason to have the national popular vote, um, which means I, I think it's just going to take you know. Every conceivable political, you know, arm possible uh, and resource that New York City has and New York State has to force this thing through. So, Bradley, um, that brings us to our final little segment where you typically make a recommendation. Last week, I think you made four. But this week, I have no not, recommendations. Now, you know, I've been thinking about it. And it seems to me that if, if I come up with something for the sake of coming up with something, it's not really a recommendation, right? Then it's just me talking for the sake of, of filling content. So it happens to be that in the last week, there's no, there's no content I've come across that I really like. There's no restaurant I've gone to that I really no like. No caffeinated beverages. No caffeinated seltzer water that I really like. Um, and rather than just make something up, I think that the validity of the recommendations that I do make are a lot stronger if I decline to make one when I don't actually have one. So like using that um, theory, the New York Times should just not come out some days, right? They should just be like, you know what? Same old shit as yesterday. We're gonna, we're just not gonna put out the newspaper. Yeah, I mean, look, I imagine that, you know, I'm sitting next to both Hugo and Corey, and all three of us read the papers every morning. Um, there's a lot of stuff that I don't read because I'm like, I read that or a version of that yesterday. 
I already know it. I can skip to the next thing. Okay, I'm going to say two things, and then we're going to let everybody go. All right. Um, one, I did listen to Bradley's podcast recommendation, which is the Audible um, series on Bernie Getz. I think it's called Fiasco, which mm-hmm. is like a series. And he was, in fact, it was a very good recommendation. It's a, it's a very, very good podcast. And I say that as someone who was not overly interested in the topic. You know, I mean, uh, but you, you also literally were here when it all happened. Yeah, I and mean, you must remember the whole Bernie Getz thing when you were a kid. I, I do. But what was interesting, I was, a, I was a high school when it happened, and right at the beginning, they talk about how terrified all New Yorkers were of crime, and I was like, well, I lived here. I wasn't terrified. I mean, I rode the subway. I mean. I was 14, 15 years old. I, I mean, I lived in a good neighborhood, but so did a lot of New Yorkers. And even... Did you ever get mugged? Yeah, a couple of times. But I, I didn't walk around terrified, though. I mean, never. So anyway. That might just be because you were a teenage boy and therefore definitely yeah. an idiot. That, that's, <laughs> my parents, I don't think, were terrified either. My, um, I, I say that as a, as a quibble. I think they did a really good job with the podcast and it had, it had a really nice uh, range of different perspectives and it, it, was, it was pretty great. Um, the other thing is, I'm going to make a recommendation. Great. Very short. I have one too. Oh, cool. Great. Okay. Even better. Hold on. That's Corey. Um, Corey, you're going to have to, I'm going to turn your mic on for your recommendation. But okay. um, So, my recommendation is this um, memoir. It's not a memoir, it's actually journal entries of an artist uh, in the 70s in New York named Duncan Hanna. And it's, it's, um, it's a book called 20th Century Boy. And it's just, it's really fantastic. A friend of mine named Jerry Howard was the editor of it. Um, and he recommended it to me. I saw him a couple weeks ago. And it is just like a, it's a coming of age story. It, there's, there's all this stuff about Warhol and, and the New York Dolls and the punk scene and the art scene and all these things. And it's just wildly and entertaining. What, what kind of art did Duncan Hanna make? He's a painter. He just died actually right before COVID of a heart attack. Um, but he was a painter. Mm-hmm. But he was, he was clearly a writer. He was a musician. He played in bands. He was just like a sort of all around kind of scene guy. But he's just, it's just so funny. It's very dirty. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a really delightful book. So cool. Uh, 20th Century Boy by Duncan Hanna. Uh, go ahead, Corey. What you got? So my recommendation for the week is to go see a concert at Pier 17 down by the South Street Seaport. Outdoors, oh, is that the one that, outdo- that's on the rooftop? That's a great venue. Outdoors, rooftop. There's tons of space. You have an amazing view of the Brooklyn Bridge, of the skyline. There's tons of bathrooms. Is there a specific artist? You're just saying so generally I speaking. See, I went to see Carly Rae Jepsen, and she sang four songs, and then there was lightning, and the concert got canceled. So that was horrible and not a recommendation. <laughs> but the hour before the show, but the hour before the show, and the first four songs were awesome. Was there a warm up act that was good? There was a horrible, horrible opener. It's just some. DJ who was like drinking wine and press play on a record it, it's on a funny. table or something. Yeah. But go check out the calendar for Pier 17. It didn't it honestly didn't feel like New York City because it was so well run, so nice and new. Yeah. And really well set. Yeah, up. I took Abby there once and we saw Billie Eilish and the opener who I didn't know at the time, but I've become a fan of was is Denzel Curry. I do think that um, it is awkward to be a DJ these days. So Lyle and I were at the Mets game on Friday night. And part of what they do on Friday nights is like DJ at City Field, right? And they keep showing this person on this, you know, the giant jumbotron, but they're just a, there's a laptop in front of them. Yeah. There's no turntables. There's nothing else. And this poor woman is like trying to dance around and look engaged, but she just kind of looked awkward and silly, you know. And she, I don't know, she she made a playlist. I, mm-hmm. I guess it was a good playlist. I don't know, but it's funny that with, with a laptop, in many ways, I think the performative role of DJ has gone away. To to your point about this person just drinking wine. 
So anyway, I think that wraps it up for today. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, rate and review us. Come check out PNT Knitwear, Order Obvious in Hindsight, Advanced Copy. It's my novel. And uh, come back next time. Thanks. Bye.